welcome to Upbringing. We're Hannah and Kelty, twins, mothers, and works in progress. Upbringing is a movement that empowers us all to engage bravely with the hardest aspects of parenting, to create positive change in ourselves, our families, and the world. Join us to build intention, elevate skills, and align our parenting practices with our greatest ideals. When we practice trust over fear, connection over control, and progress over perfection, we're not just raising our kids, we're raising ourselves. Let's show up and grow up. Today's episode is supported by Daughter of the Land, a skincare line defined by simplicity, authenticity, and purpose. Their meaningful products use clean, organic, fair trade ingredients and are created with sustainability in mind. Learn more about Daughter of the Land and support upbringing by visiting today's show notes. Now on to our conversation. Alexa Wilding is a writer, singer-songwriter, and cancer mom to seven-year-old Lou and his twin brother, West. Her music and writing have been featured in the New York Times, Lenny Letter, The Glow, Style Like You, and Parents.com, among others. After completing an MFA in writing at the Writers' Foundry in Brooklyn, Alexa and her family moved from the city to the Hudson Valley, where she has been writing her first book. This summer, Alexa and her family discovered that her son Lou's cancer had returned, and since then have been balancing between their hometown life and the distant and complicated world of treatment. Connecting with Alexa was a dream come true, and in some ways, a nightmare come true. As parents, we all share the fear of having a child with a serious illness, and it's natural to turn away from the stories that scare us that could maybe force us to examine our greatest fears. And then there's Alexa Wilding, whose winding words have drawn us in like a moth to a flame. We can't look away because Alexa has this magical ability to spin poetry from darkness by converting it to light, to draw us close, to safely grow alongside her as we realize we have all been, in many ways, sleepwalking. This episode represents more than just Alexa's family story. It's a golden thread, a magical lifeline that connects us to what matters in life and how we can all be united by it. It's also a rare view into the prismatic internal life of a woman ascending and the wise and poetic lessons she's learned along the way. In listening to Alexa's story, we are awakened, better able to lean in bravely to the scary plot twists of our own lives and to leave our fear and egos behind as we care for others who are suffering. This is a special episode between Alexa and you, the listener. You'll usually hear us questioning, laughing, shifting, and sharing in the conversation, but we finished our call thinking, wow, I'm so glad we didn't over-talk and just listened to her, which led us to wonder why we wouldn't just allow this episode to be a pure monologue, the TED Talk Alexa jokes about at a certain point in the conversation. Would it be crazy to just cut our voices and let Alexa own the stage to share her story? So we've removed our distracting questioning in an effort to let Alexa's voice and story flow and resonate in our ears and hearts. Brilliant, honest, brave, and beautiful. There are only two clarifications to our conversation that need to be made. One is our reference to the personal growth book and Alexa's old hashtag, I'm okay, you're okay. And the other is to Leonard Cohen's song, Anthem, and its lyrics, ring the bells that still can ring, forget your perfect offering, there is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. It is our honor to share the words of Alexa Wilding, our muse, the unwillingly enlightened, temporarily brilliant alchemical cancer mom. Here we go. When I decided to share 
this journey we're on, on Instagram, it was a very conscious choice. Like most people, I have a very fraught relationship with the platform. I feel like we all do, right? It's, we love it, we rely on it, but it can make us feel really bad. It can um, make us feel really good. And I, when Lou was first diagnosed, I really wanted to keep things private because I wanted us to get our game plan together. It was so shattering to find out he had cancer again that I didn't even know what to say. But when I got back on, I decided to use this opportunity to sort of kill a few birds with one stone. I said, okay, I wanna let everyone know what's going on selfishly so I don't have to say the same things 25 times a day to the people who love us and need updates. So I'm gonna use Instagram to let everyone know what's going on. Two, I'm gonna make friends with this platform, which in the past, um, I've had a tempestuous relationship with. As a musician, you know, I was always told, you need to boost your numbers, you need, we need more of a following. And then when I was switching over to writing, it was that same pressure of, you know, we're not gonna be able to sell your book unless you boost your numbers. I mean, these horrible, horrible pressures. And I found that that, was a uh, made for a really unhealthy relationship. So when I decided to go sort of public with our journey, I said, you know what? I am just going to finally be myself on this thing, whatever this thing is, this world of squares, because I want to do two things. I have no time for myself because I'm taking care of my one sick son and my one well son. And I need to write, but I also need to feel that this is something bigger than just me and my family. So I decided to process everything in real time. And that was a real tall order (laughs) to give yourself when you're going through a trauma. But I said, if I can just take five minutes, 10 minutes, when the inspiration hits, when I feel like I have something that I not only need to get out of my body, but something that could maybe help someone else with the same thing stuck in their body, then I win. And you really need to feel like you're winning when you don't know if you're winning on a day-to-day basis with something like cancer. So when I sit, and again, I don't have a huge, huge following, but what's happened over the um, last six months, and I've always had a really devoted community following me, which I feel so lucky for, you know, through my 10 years as a singer-songwriter, I've had some videos go viral talking about um, body acceptance, um, being a mother, cancer. I've been very fortunate to have those experiences and to have people who've been kind of following me for a while. But all these new followers started hopping on. And um, it was really incredible because... (laughs) For the first time, I wasn't trying to sell anything. I don't have a product. I don't have, like, I'm not trying to get you to buy something. And it was amazing because I was finally able to say I wrote a little bit that day and I was able to help some other people out there. And the DMs and the messages I get from other mothers in hospitals or even just people having a really bad day (laughs) means the world to me. So when I sit down to do it, it is literally in real time. Um, I wait till that moment strikes me and I have 
written those vignettes, sitting in waiting rooms, waiting for Lou to come out of radiation. I have literally written them in taxis online at like some stupid store like TJ Maxx or something when I've needed to <laughs> distract myself. I've really made an effort to keep my body and my brain and my channels as clear as possible by getting this stuff out because I feel like when you're going through something really tough and I've learned this from not doing this before it's so important to feel things in real time otherwise they get stored in you and they come out later in really bad ways and I've found this time that because I chose to share my story and because I chose to very inconveniently try to find the muse in waiting rooms and bathrooms, um, I've been able to keep myself healthy emotionally and artistically and in turn physically. So that's something that's really a gift. And I'm happy that I've been able to use a platform that used to be so fraught for me. Um, you know, no one likes me. I, I just posted something about a show and no one cares. They only care about the picture of my dinner. You know, um, I've been able to make friends and in turn feel like I'm connected to everyone in the world. And that's that's a real cool thing. When Lou had cancer the first time, so he was first diagnosed with a rare brain tumor, cancerous brain tumor when he was one. And I was a new twin mother so I'd already gotten to year one with twins, which was total bonkers bananas. And then I found myself in the hospital for a good six months, you know, with this little guy who I actually didn't really know very well. Um, I'm not ashamed to say that, you know, I, I didn't have that. Um, the first time I saw my children, I just felt this love of, you know, and that's so wonderful when mothers say that. But I always my own mother has said that about when I was born. And I remember feeling such shame that I didn't feel those things when West and Lou were first born because I was so overwhelmed by the task at hand. Um, and it really took an emergency. It took having to surrender to the fact that I as their mother couldn't actually save one of their lives alone for me to really find that true love. And the moment it happened to me was actually in the hospital. I mean, this is, I'll really paint a picture for you. I'm really going to bring this home. But uh, we were, we were in the hospital room. Lou's one years old. I had West at home in the apartment with Ian. It's the middle of the night. We'd been up forever. He finally went to sleep. And I remember sitting on the recliner chair that was doubled as my bed. They've since upgraded, thankfully. Um, I remember looking out at the East River at all the lights and that Leonard Cohen song came to me. And it was that moment I felt such happiness because I had finally connected with that maternal love, you know, a year and a half, maybe too late. Um, but I was right on time for me. And I remember thinking, wow, the silver lining in this moment, I have a child receiving chemotherapy is an aggressive brain cancer. I have another kid at home. This is kind of really bad. But in that moment, I was able to connect to that love. And um, so I always think about that song. And I think that that lyric 
really guides me on a day-to-day basis. You know, I always joke, like, I want to do a TED Talk, but I have no idea what my TED Talk would be because there's so many things. I can't just get up there and be like, I love Leonard Cohen. Let's talk about that song. But I feel like my message, if I want to sell anything, is, listen, like, I went through this really crappy thing, and then it happened again. It wasn't supposed to happen again, and it did. I can't just have a horrible life. I have to wake up and find something every day to get me through this day. So is there a way to just find the light in something every single day, even if you're having a really bad day? And if you're a cancer mom, your day is probably going to suck in like 25 ways. But you have to ground yourself, you know, in that idea. And um, I think that's just to bring it back to like the Instagram posts. That's also kind of what I'm doing. If I find that moment, I really want to share it because it saved my day. It was so funny. I was joking with my friend Molly um, Rosen Guy, you know, who was of Stone Fox Bride, who's who's writing now. She's one of my best friends, and um, she, I joked with her. I was like, I got to make friends with Instagram, and I needed a, a hashtag. <laughs> I was like, give me one. This is before I started sharing, and she said, How about Alchemical Cancer Mom? And I was like okay, cool. And it was kind of just a joke. But the more I started using it, the more I realized, no, that's what I'm doing. I, I want to take a moment and somehow spin it into something that someone else can grab onto. So it becomes like this golden thread, you know, that we can all hold on to because I need a lifeline. And maybe if, if we all hop on, you know, then we've got this really cool like Congo line. <laughs> so <laughs> I think the first time I heard about that book was when I was a kid and my favorite movie, totally inappropriately so, was Desperately Seeking Susan uh, with Madonna. And um, I grew up in the city and I just loved that movie. And um, I remember, I think that book was on Roberta's nightstand because she had all the self-help books. And they were just like, I'm okay, you're okay. And it just kind of stuck with me. And um, growing up, I remember all my mom's friends had that book on their nightstand. And as a kid, I, I would always crack myself up and I'd be like, I'm okay, you're okay. Like, what the hell does that mean? And as a grown up, I, I saw the book in a secondhand store and just thought it was a really hilarious hashtag. hashtag. Because obviously, you know, we're really not okay most of the time. And um, I would use that hashtag with a sense of humor, like with irony. Some people didn't get it. (laughs) um, But here's the thing about that funny hashtag. I used that for about two years with my posts. But it was a time that I'm looking back upon and I'm realizing that at least what I was sharing on Instagram or what I was sharing in my writing elsewhere I wasn't really 100% grounded in my own authenticity at that time. I was really trying to spin a narrative that I think a lot of moms, and especially mothers with children who are cancer survivors or mothers who've been through hell, there's this real pressure when the disaster's over to spin your story like, we did it, we're done, like, we got this. And... I have a real problem with that because it's often when the disaster is over that the real struggle begins. 
So I was using that I'm okay, you're okay, almost in a tongue in cheek way of being like, I am so not okay, you're so not okay, how can we meet and come together? But I quickly stopped using that when I realized in a state of just utter shock, total gut punch, when Lou was diagnosed again, I realized not how I had been lying to my friends and followers and the universe, but how I had been lying to myself. I really wasn't getting to the marrow of how I was. I, I had really been seduced by this idea of, as mothers, we're betraying our child if we say we're not okay. And I sort of made a promise to myself that I would never do that again, which is why I stopped using the Desperately Seeking Susan, you know, I'm okay, you're okay, hashtag, because I realized that was me trying to keep it together and I don't want to try to keep it together anymore. Instead of trying to keep it together, I want to find a really authentic way of, of getting through my day. And so that's where finding that golden thread um, comes in. When we're in the hospital, I always joke, it's like we're on a cruise ship. The hospital is its own funny world. It has its own set of characters. It's very busy. It's very easy to distract yourself in the hospital. So I've actually been really interested in the last five weeks where we've done radiation. We didn't do radiation the first time Lou had cancer. So this was a real new world for us. And it was in really intense. We had an apartment in the city where Lou and I would stay. And every morning a driver would come and pick us up and drive us an hour into the middle of New Jersey to this radiation center, which, was, which is in the middle of an office park. And I'm really interested in this chapter because it was so lonely and so quiet. And I was really forced in that hour in the waiting room to sit with myself and my feelings. So a typical day, um, I would wake up before Lou around like 5.30 in the morning. I'd make my coffee. I would try to ground myself. I would always feel all this pressure Maybe this is the Instagram influence, right? Like, it's so great that we're all trying to be so well, but I would feel all this pressure. I'd like wake up and be like, I have to get grounded. I, I need crystals and I need my Oracle deck, you know? And like, I, I need to meditate. I need to, you know, dry brush and do all this stuff. And I think all those things are so wonderful. But when you're really in an emergency, you really got to pick and choose. <laughs> and, more often than not, I would sit quietly for 15 minutes with my coffee and just be with myself. And that was better than any deck or rock. I have plenty of all those things, but that was really it for me. And then Lou would wake up and this day-long conversation between the two of us would begin. And when you're taking care of a sick kid, it's... I call it the never-ending conversation because when you wake up, you begin yet another day of negotiating, navigating their emotions, trying to keep the temperature at a level that's bearable for you both. 
I mean, it really sucks to have to get in a car with a child who's not allowed to eat or drink until they get to treatment. It really sucks to then have to sit with them while they're put to sleep every single morning so they can be they can lie still to receive their therapy. I mean, it's kind of like going to the airport every day with no food in your stomach. I mean, it it it, it it's really shitty, right? Um, so I would have to navigate like every day. How do I make sure Lou knows that I know this really sucks, but I'm also here to help him try to also find the light in his morning. So that was like a really big challenge because you don't want to just like, I don't know if gaslight's the right word, like you don't want to be like, everything's great, you know? <laughs> but you also don't want to be like, this really sucks, I know. I know this is terrible. And um, my own mother who has been so incredible, I mean, she would stay with us in the city and help me. Um, but she would be so sweet. She'd Whenever I or Lou would show weakness or sadness in what was going on, she'd always be like, I know, my poor babies. And it was coming from such a beautiful, genuine place. But I would turn into a 14-year-old and I would just go, stop. Like, that is not what we need right now because it was two in one direction. You see what I mean? So... So that was like my daily challenge. How do I attend to my kid, keep his spirits up, but also acknowledge and validate his feelings? Um, and then we'd get in the car and we had a host of hilarious drivers who would distract us. But driving every single day to the middle of nowhere on the New Jersey Turnpike, it's a very meditative experience. And sometimes out of nowhere, Lou would ask these questions that, I, as a cancer mom, on the spot, would have to figure out how to answer. Questions like, why did this happen to me again? And a question like that would come after, you know, can I play Minecraft when we get home? So, I mean, it's like he doesn't understand that the weight of those questions are so different. But for me, I would have to stomach these gut punches. How do you answer questions like that? How do you answer questions like, you know, when we're done with radiation, is treatment over? So I would sit there in the car just watching the nothingness sort of pass us by, watching the city skyline. It's a really cool view, actually, when you get onto the New Jersey Turnpike. I would have this wonderful perspective of everything that was happening to us in Manhattan. You know, Manhattan, my hometown where I grew up, where all these really crappy things have happened, you know, in the last six, seven years. And I would get this perspective and it would be really cool because I would see the, the skyline and I'd look at my little child and I would be able to find this kind of cool, wise answer to his questions simply because of that view, I swear. Um, and I would find myself answering the question as honestly as I could. So that's, I think, another example of the hidden, you know, this, I hate that silver lining or the, the hidden gifts to a shitty situation is you do find a lot of wisdom that you didn't know you had. So I would answer the question as honestly as I could. And I'd say, Lou, we're going to be done with radiation. We're going to go home for six weeks. Then we're going to 
and your only job is going to be to eat and rest and play with your brother. And then in the new year, we're going to go and we're going to take pictures inside your body and make sure everything's okay. And I'm pretty sure it's going to be okay. And if it's not, we'll take care of that too. I would say these things like, Jesus lady, where did you get this? You know, because, <laughs> but it comes up. <laughs> you know, I have a joke with a cancer mom friend of mine where we refer to ourselves as temporarily brilliant because it's not us. It just, <laughs> it just comes to you because you're in this state. You're able to have that perspective in an emergency that you don't have on a daily basis. So, that's kind of my whole day. It's giving him meds, making sure he's okay, getting food into him, making sure his hands are clean, making sure nothing touches him that could make him sick. I mean, I've been in a state of, you know, emergency of constant guard dog for six months now, just trying to get him through this. And it's going to be hard these six weeks to come down from that. You know, a neighbor knocks on the door and you want to hug them, but what if they're sick? Or they, they come in bringing a lasagna, but you need to have them Purell before they come in. It's like all these guard dog things that for a reformed, a reformed recovering people pleaser has been very <laughs> humbling for me. <laughs> um, what is a day in the life of a cancer mom? It's like a day in the life, you live two days. You live the day of the, the things that you have to tend to immediately, like tissues and Purell and medication and getting to your treatment on time. And then there's all this stuff happening on another dimension, which is your internal life. And I guess the first time Lou was sick, I wasn't sure if I was allowed to have an internal life. I thought that would make me a bad mom if I wasn't just constantly in that present mode. But this time around, I'm realizing that the two have to exist together in order for us both to survive such an ordeal. I was saying to a friend recently, she said, what has this been like for you, you know, as an artist, as a human? Um, and honestly, the first couple weeks when I knew we were going back to Cancer Island, you know, an island you never want to be on again, but an island that I feel in a strange way, I was the only one who really <laughs> understood what a possibility that was. And maybe that's why I couldn't relax. Maybe that's why I needed the I'm okay, you're okay these last few years. Um, but when we found out we were going to be back on Cancer Island for an indefinite amount of time, this is kind of a violent image, but it really feels like there's a gun to your head. And the moment becomes so crucial. And that moment is, oh my God, there's a gun to my head. What matters? Obviously, and once again, it's that splitting. It's what matters in the present moment. What matters in the present moment is keeping my child healthy so he can get through treatment. What matters is keeping my child with us. But also, oh my God, what matters to me? Now that my freedom and my agency, my days have been taken from me, what, now that there is no time, now that there is no agency and no freedom, what am I dying to do? And that blew my, it blew my mind when I realized 
what a gift it was to have your days taken away. Because when they're taken away, you suddenly realize how you want to structure them, the things you want to be doing. And you also find that even when there is no time, who you really are and what you really want to be doing finds a way to come out, whether it's that five minutes in the waiting room sharing a vignette on Instagram or thinking about a project um, on a bigger level. I, I also think that you have so much time. It's like when you're seeing your child through an illness, your time is not your own, yet you have so much time. It's like a perpetual waiting room. You're always in a waiting room, in a lobby, in a hospital room, just trying to both be as present as you can be, but also X that day and get to the next one. It's this crazy dualism. And your former selves find a way of visiting you. And I think for me, one of the coolest and one of the most heartbreaking sort of revelations that came to me was how I felt that when I became a mother of twins and then when I became a mother of a child going through cancer and then a mother of a cancer survivor, it was very hard for me to allow myself the permission to be all the different people I am. I really believe that women in particular and mothers, we're like prisms. We have so many parts to ourselves and sometimes some of those parts have to go dormant or they don't get the attention. And that's just part of motherhood, right? We can't always be everything at once while we're also tending to these people. But all those former selves that I had sent away just came a knocking. And they came a knocking like at three in the three in the morning at the hospital, you know, when the monitors would be beeping. And I had these incredible moments of, Alexa, why did you quit music? Or did you want to? Or was it because you thought you failed? Or is it because you think if you spend too much time chasing something, your child will get sick again? Or, I mean, all these crazy thoughts. Or you really want to write a book. Why did, why did you freeze for two years? Why weren't you able to get your message across? I mean, all, it was, so it was really interesting because... I had a lot of clarity about myself finally um, during these these moments. So past selves, there is a particular self that keeps coming back to me. And I guess we can call her, you know, my maiden. We all have the maiden we were, you know, before we were mothers. Um, my maiden, man, she she really has a way of showing up and just raising hell because she knows that I didn't really take care of her very well. And she was the touring singer-songwriter with the perfect long hair and the bangs, who everyone wanted to dress, and she always looked really good, and she wanted to be famous, and she was always like falling in love with her guitar player, and like, you know, being on the road with the guys. Like, she was hilarious. But I totally ditched her when I became a mother. I think we all, as mothers, have that part of ourselves that is just not crossing over. And I have a different rope that I'm trying to throw over to her because I really need her. 
I think she's got some songs that need to be written once this is all over. I think she too has a future on this side of the world. So I always say to my friends who, you know, are, are new moms or have young kids at home, it may feel like you've had to give up parts of yourself. And obviously if you're going through cancer or something really crappy, there's no time to reclaim all those parts, but they'll come back and you can kind of coax them slowly. So I feel like I'm in the process of bringing that little, you know, size four vixen with her guitar <laughs> and her ambition and her crushes and her messy masses over here. And I really, I look forward to that day. It's coming. <laughs> Ian and I came up with a blanket term to describe this feeling we get, the feeling of just, this is so painful. You know how in Portlandia there was that skit where it was like, cacao is the safe word, <laughs> remember? <laughs> we, um, we came up with um, drowning kittens, um, which is a horrible image. Um, whenever things started to feel just so horrible, but we couldn't lose it because we were like in the car with our kids, we would just be like, oh my God, drowning kittens. And Ian would be like, yep, mm-hmm. Drowning kittens. So drowning kittens happens when Lou and I would have to go and leave Ian and West for the week. Um, drowning kittens would happen when I would have to leave West and go back to Lou. I think any twin parent will tell you, and you guys probably know as twins, you're a unit, whether you like it or not. To separate twins in the first place is like, it's drowning kittens. I don't even know how to explain it. It was easier when, yeah, it was easier when they were babies when I didn't know them very well. And again, sometimes people have a hard time when I say that, but I really didn't. I was so preoccupied with feeding them and changing them and understanding that I brought two human beings into the world at the same time that I just didn't really get a chance to know them until they had to be separated due to Lou's illness. So once again, a silver lining there. While it's drowning kittens to separate identical twins, the silver lining light is you get to know them as individuals. And I feel so close to West and Lou. West and Lou have completely blown my mind. I joke sometimes that, you know, Guru Lou and Guru West and I don't mean that I like worship my children because that would be totally cuckoo bananas, but I just am learning so much from their strength. They know that they're connected all the time. They have an easier time being separated than Ian and I have in dealing with their separations because they have this unerring faith that they will be reunited. And, um, that's beautiful. It's also a drowning kitten's horrific pressure because there's always that horrific, that horrible thought, you know, I got to keep these kids together. So how are they doing? Strangely, West has been having a harder time because he's the twin who has to be left. So we've made a huge effort to always make sure, and we did this the first time too. It's been more complicated now that we live two hours north of Manhattan. So we we used to be able to, Ian and I, to just switch out every night for the long hospitalizations. 
and we've had to now break it up into chunks but we always make sure there's a parent with either West or, or Lou and we try to keep West's life as normal as possible. So this summer was a bit of a shit show because we enrolled him in camp. We thought we were doing all the right things by keeping his life quote unquote normal while Lou had to undergo you know, the horrors of hospital life and chemo. It became very clear that that wasn't really working for West. And it was really cool that as a six-year-old, he was able to say, I want to be with Lou. I hate this. And Ian and I very quickly, you know, as parents, you always think you've come up with like the greatest idea ever. And it's very humbling when your little gurus tell you, actually, that was the worst idea you've ever had. <laughs> so we ended up um, having West stay with us in the city. And I thought it was going to be the world's worst summer. I mean, he just hung out at the hospital. He had the best time. So it's actually been harder for him now that he's back in school. But um, how are they doing? West, West has definitely struggled, but it's also given him the opportunity as a twin and as the more introverted twin to step into himself. So I'm really proud of him. He's made friends on his own. He's developed a confidence that wasn't there before. Lou is... I don't know if it's because cancer has been a part of his life since he was one. He's always felt different. But he's kind of like an intergalactic like star creature. Like I don't know how he got beamed into my womb because he's just from a different planet. Whereas West is very much an earthling. He's very here. He's very present. He's very of the earth. But Lou, he is kind of amazing. He just gets it. He understands that this is happening to him and he wants to participate. And that's something that I am astounded by because if I were him, I would be on the floor crying and like watching Seinfeld all day. Like I just would be a mess. But he has this dignity to him where he understands that this is this is his path and we might as well have a good time. So maybe that's testament to our parenting. Maybe it's testament to just who he is, you know, uh, whatever happened to him on planet Zoltron where he's from, you know. <laughs> but I'm pretty amazed with them. But again, um, sorry if I'm rambling. I was joking, like, I can do a podcast like my first day off after five weeks of radiation. I was like, I'm going to be speaking in tongues. <laughs> I hope I'm making sense. Um, <laughs> she's like, blah, blah, blah. But just lastly, how are they doing? It vacillates. We have our drowning kittens moments, but the drowning kittens moments only seem to really be happening to me and Ian. West and Lou just have this incredible faith and patience. Of course, they want this to be over. And we have those drowning kittens moments of, you know, when am I going back to school? When, why, is, is Wes going to get a brain tumor too? You know, all these questions. Um, and we don't always have answers. But we've got these guys who are super patient and super, super present. So I feel really, really lucky. Really, really lucky. I had a moment when I realized that I too feel like an alien now. I was home and there was a, a big like flea market and I went with a friend of mine. There were all these vendors and 
I was like, okay, I'm just going to be a normal person. I just got paid for doing something. I'm going to blow some money. I'm going to buy a dress. Like, I, I need to feel good. So I go to this fair, and I'm with my friend. And we run into this guy, and he knows my situation and everything. And he said, oh, how are your kids? And I said, yeah, yeah we're hanging in there, blah, 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 blah. And then my friend asks him how he's doing, and he just went into a litany of, you know, Things are really hard. Our cat died and got to remodel our kitchen. And it's like hard and we have a new baby and he's not sleeping. And and I just stood there like nodding my head and smiling. (laughs) And it's not that I and it was such a moment of, okay, if I really sucked, I would turn into like the bitchiest person ever right now. Right. But I know better. This is his experience. This is his life. And those things are really hard. But then there was that part of me that was hurt that he was able to go so quickly from how's your cancer child to, oh, my God, my kitchen. But again, I don't suck. Hopefully I have a heart and I felt bad for him. But I didn't know where I was, where I was in that conversation. I didn't know where I was allowed to be. And I've talked to a lot of mothers going through cancer and other things that has been so amazing by the way just a quick shout out like every time i get a dm or an email from a mother who's following me my heart just explodes my heart explodes because i know there's someone else out there who's having a conversation like that with the guy who doesn't know what to do with his kitchen (laughs) i know there's someone else who's standing there not knowing how they're allowed to be and knowing that just makes everything so much better and now I totally segued. But anyway, just quick, quick shout out, like reach out if, if, if and someone's listening to this, like you can DM me, DM someone else, you know, or don't even know in real life. Like it is so important for us to band together because when you're living on Cancer Island, it has its own language and it's such a burden sometimes to explain to people who aren't on that island that you don't really understand the language they're speaking. You're ashamed that you no longer understand it. You don't want people to think that you think you're so great because you're, you know, this saintly cancer parent. We don't think we're so great. We hate it, but this is what we're doing. And it's such a relief when you can speak that language. And I think that's why I wanted to share too. I wanted people to like be able to talk to me and understand the language that I'm speaking now so we can have more of a conversation and instead of Alexa's going through this, I'm going through that. No, we're all going through stuff. It just has its place on the spectrum of what's happening. I think so few of us were really taught how to actually be of support. I wasn't, and it's not my parents' fault. They weren't taught it. Um, very few people come into adulthood knowing how to leave their ego at the door and just hold someone. It's something that I had to learn being on the receiving end. Um, I was definitely that friend who disappeared when a friend's mom died. I was that friend who the thought of what was happening to my friend was so horrible that like I just couldn't deal with it. Um, it took having to receive help for me to understand how to help. So everybody wants to help. Everyone is so devastated. And I think 
The best analogy I can give is we set up two meal trains in two locations these last five weeks. And there were a handful of friends who read the instructions on the meal train page, put their meals together, left the bag on the porch, even when I was home. And I would call them later and say, I was home, you totally could have knocked. But they left it outside and went on with their day. And I used that example because they quite literally took their ego with them and just dropped off what was needed. And that sounds really preachy, like, hey guys, leave your ego at the door, don't bring it in, you know? But people don't understand that to really support, you have to just clear out and be an empty vessel with open arms. And ask the person, what do you need? I think people get so afraid that they're not gonna be enough they're so afraid that they, they're so ashamed or scared that they don't speak your language that they end up talking too much or, you know, um, saying the wrong thing when they don't actually have to say anything. So what can you do to be, to be of help? Just show up and acknowledge that you have no idea what to do. Tell me what to do. Um, you know, I have, I have friends who are really gifted supporters. Um, I'm bringing up Molly again, but Molly, when, um, when uh, Lou was sick the first time, wrote me my favorite email. That email was, I told her what was going on, and the email was, nothing I say is going to be the right thing to say. In fact, anything I say is going to be really stupid. So I'm just going to say I love you and tell me what to do. That was the best email I ever got in my life. That's the kind of email. That's the kind of email that you can send. That's the kind of thing you should say. You're here and you know, I think knowing that people are there, you may not call on them. Like if you let's say your child has 6 months of treatment ahead of them. You know, at the beginning of the 6 months, one of the reasons I didn't want to go public was I had the experience of the first time of knowing that the minute I let everyone know what's going on, I have the wonderful problem of being really loved and of having a lot of incredible people who want to help. But the minute I let everyone know, my phone is going to be ringing off the hook and I'm going to have to manage what is essentially like a PR campaign for my child. And that is such a burden. And people don't understand that in an emergency, everyone just kind of falls into a role. And you may be that mother's best friend, but for whatever reason, you might not be the person there every day. It might be the neighbor that your friend never knows just because she lives next door. Or it might be someone you only know because you follow them on Instagram and they're the ones that end up hooking you up with a doctor or um, support. That's something that has always fascinated me. People hear about an emergency of a loved one and they immediately decide for themselves what their role is going to be. And they are really quickly disappointed because the emergency will tell you where you're going to fit. And so I always say to people, if you have a loved one who's going through hell, 
You just need to be on the sidelines, remind them that you're there, don't be hurt if they don't need you, but keep reminding them they're not gonna be able to get back to you all the time. And know that um, your time will come and it might be something as simple as you picking up groceries or um, making a phone call or sending a text. But I always say, if you really wanna help, be really realistic about what you can do. You are not a bad friend if you're pregnant and have four kids at home and can't get to the hospital. That's totally understandable. What can you commit to? So I had a friend the first time who people were like, isn't it, isn't it terrible that you haven't seen so-and-so? And I said, no, nope, because so-and-so texts me every morning. That's what she could commit to. Because the worst thing is, and anyone who talks to me knows I have this like really funny like Woody Allen movie, Seinfeld-esque thing about the meal trains because <laughs> meal trains bring out all the cray-cray. <laughs> because they are, a meal train is the most beautiful thing you can do because when you are in a crisis, you seriously cannot boil water. But everyone wants to help so badly and everyone tries so hard. And sometimes it works out like when the bag is just left outside. And then sometimes it turns into the most beautiful, most human comedy of errors. <laughs> and you as the person going through it, just fill up with so much love for this person. Like, hi, you're a single mom with like four kids and you live 45 minutes away and you signed up for a Sunday night. Like, honey, that's not gonna happen and that's really okay. <laughs> you know? So it's like, I feel kind of bitchy, like even, talking about this but like that's the reality you know like if you want to send me something don't send me 10 texts telling me it's coming like just send it it's okay like I'm not mad you know I, I don't actually have time to think about you right now and that doesn't make me a bad person either <laughs> so it's just you know how do you support just bow down to the the unknown man and feel it for them, send them those good vibes, take out those crystals and those cards, like all that stuff is so good. But at the end of the day, let them tell you how to be needed. That impulse to somehow connect an experience of your own with what they're going through. That was my impulse for so many years. I was constantly doing that. Man, was I a ding dong. Like I, I never did the right thing. But, but doing that, it, can end up being so hurtful and can really make the person feel like they're talking to the kitchen guy. Um, you know, I have, when someone says to me, you know, oh, I know what you're going through. I, I spent a week in the hospital because my child had blah, blah, blah. It just puts me in a really sh shitty position. I feel so terrible that their child had blah, blah, blah. I I'm so sorry you went through that, but that's not what I'm going through. And just listen to me tell you what my story is. Just like, I don't know what it's like to lose a child. And we don't want to talk that way, right? Of course we don't. But that's something that's a reality that's out there for any parent. And I don't know what that's like. I don't know what it's like to lose a parent. I don't know. So I think in general, when you go through something crappy, like seeing your kid through cancer, there's a burden that's put on you because you learn all these secrets 
right? You learn, you're forced. I like to say you're unwillingly enlightened. You're kicking and screaming like, I don't want to know these things. I don't, I don't want to look at the kitchen guy and be like, dude's got to chill out. Like, I just want, I want to be the kitchen guy, <laughs> you know? But if you can step into that burden with as much grace and sense of humor as possible, your day's going to go a lot better and you'll be able to connect with kitchen guy and connect with the person who cannot get the meal train dinner together. And you can all just laugh at how hard we are all trying because we are all trying so hard, no matter what our emergency is. I really believe that about humans. We're just, we are so funny. We are just trying and having that awareness can really save you at the end of the day. Just go easy, go easy. But yeah, I do, <laughs> just lastly, I do, um, I never really get bitter because I, maybe I should a little, I should explore that for like an hour, but um, I don't really like that feeling. I don't, I'm not good with anger. I'm trying to lean into it a little bit more. Like, why is this happening to me? But I don't really go there. But there are times when it's like, oh, here's a great example. Um, when the driver got the time wrong and was two hours late to pick us up for radiation. So here I am with my kid who can't eat. We don't want to go anyway. Now we have to wait two more hours and there was a total screw up. And my immediate impulse was, you know, oh my God, how could they do this to us? And I called up the place and I got the guy on the phone and I said, hey, I don't know how this happened because we confirmed. And he was like, oh my God, I am so sorry. You can yell at me. And the minute he said that, I was like, I wish I could yell at him, but I can't yell at him because I know that's not going to do anything. It's not going to make the car come. He already feels terrible. He knows where we're going. But I thought about people I just saw on the street and out in the world that day before who, you know, the woman yelling about her coffee order being wrong or the guy screaming at a cyclist who almost ran him over. And like, those are all crappy things, right? But for a split second, I really envied them that they were able to lose their shit because I don't have enough gigabyte space to lose my shit over the car not coming. And it's not a car that's coming to take us to the airport so we can go on vacation. It's a car that's taking us to save my kid's life. And that was really a moment that morning. And then I talked to the guy and he said, thank you so much for your understanding. And then I had a moment where I was like, am I being awesome or am I a doormat? This is a, I don't know. I'm not sure. And I wasn't sure for like an hour there. But then when he called me back, he said, I just want to apologize again. I want you to know that I have two children who had major health issues and I really feel for you. And we had this beautiful moment. And I was like, note to self, <laughs> note to self, Alexa Wilding, <laughs> when you don't lose your shit on someone, it allows for the possibility of a connection. That said, we should all be given the luxury of losing it and mothers and fathers and caregivers not going through an emergency deserve that right. I always felt guilty falling apart or saying I needed help. I'm still trying to get better at it. But when I see someone losing it, 
I always remind myself that is an option. It's just how do you lose it in a controlled environment where no one's going to get hurt? Yourself being the number one, because losing it when you when you have to keep your reserves for your child, you need to make sure you don't just give all your ammunition away, you know, yelling at the car guy. So, so many lessons. And again, like unwillingly learned, you know, like sometimes I'm like, great, now I know this secret to life. And there's still a lot I don't know. I'm not saying I, the cancer mom, am the enlightened creature, you know, it's in the jumpsuit. Like that's not, <laughs> not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that there is an accelerated learning that happens in an emergency. And sometimes it makes you mad. You don't want to know those things. You just want to worry about your kitchen. It's so nice to have this space to talk. Like I am literally on my bed in a dirty jumpsuit <laughs> and a hat. Like I haven't been home in five weeks really. And to be able to sit here and have this platform, knowing that there's a lot of other parents out here who hopefully will listen to this and feel less alone, that is just the greatest gift. So thank you for having me. A chapter always comes to a close just when you've gotten comfortable. The part of the story you couldn't wait to leave suddenly becomes the page you want to stay on because you know it. You've underlined the words with your shaky pen. It hurts, but you know it like the back of your hand. Can't I just stay here at the radiation place next to the iPad playing the oldies, the man with the PBS tote, the woman with her crucifix? Lou finishes radiation this week. Today is my last day. I'll switch out as usual with Ian, but I'll miss the ringing of the bell and the Rocky song on Friday because Wes needs me too. You must be so happy it's over, people say. Of course I am. But six weeks at home, the holidays, knowing we scan in the new year, a page written in a language I have yet to master. People who love you want answers. Is treatment over? When will he go back to school? It's going to be okay, right? It hurts me that I hurt them when I have no answers. We just speak different languages. Of course I want it to all be okay, but I'm not betraying my child by saying I'm preparing for every outcome. I'm not being a bad manifester or lousy witch. How do I explain that leaning into all the plot twists give me superpowers? makes me fear less, that I owe this to him. It hurts like hell, but I've been unwillingly enlightened. I know to keep ascending, to keep pushing until there is no fear. This morning, our favorite driver asked me, how are you doing, kid? And my throat closed up. Much of my life I've frozen when true kindness hits. I panic, I don't really know what to do. At first I thought he met Lou, but he met me. I looked out at the New Jersey turnpike. Lou squeezed my hand, my throat relaxed. I took a deep breath, melting some, and I said, almost there. I don't know where there is, but I'm gonna keep going. Thank you for being here and for listening today. We know you're all with us in sending positive thoughts and prayers to the beloved intergalactic star creature Lou and love and gratitude for Alexa Wilding and the incredible way she has made both their family reality and her internal journey something we can all connect with and grow from. Her words have helped us develop a sense of fluency, 
between Cancer Island and the mainland, a bridge of sorts that can connect us through trauma and help us more bravely and transparently interact with it close up and from a distance. We have something we wanted to say to Alexa as well, and we know you're with us and telling her this. Alexa, this is something bigger than you and your family. We're grateful for the ability to hold hands alongside you, processing some of what you're going through as you are in real time. And we know we're joined by our listeners and sending our love during this fragile period at home before January. We're all here beside you, empty vessels with open arms, ringing the bells and looking for the light. Learn more about Alexa at alexawilding.com and follow her journey on Instagram at alexawilding. As always, we would love to hear your thoughts on our conversation. So please DM, call, email, or contact us through our website at upbringing.co. Lastly, you are doing an amazing job. We're so proud of you. And we're right here with you taking steps to better understand ourselves, our kids, and one another. So thanks for being here. We're all growing up together. Till next time.